Okay, John chapter 11. Once again, we have focused on these two verses the last couple weeks. We're going to begin again with them this morning. Verse 5 says this, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now, if you could go over to verse 38. This is Jesus standing before Lazarus' tomb. Lazarus is dead inside. Verse 38 says this, Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you you that you have heard me and I know that you always hear me but because of the people who are standing by I said this that they may believe that you sent me now when he had said these things he cried out with a loud voice Lazarus come forth and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do for this man works many signs? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the words of life. And Lord Jesus, you're, we just read about you speaking, speaking to a man dead, and he came alive. And Lord, we are mindful, I am mindful, that your word says in the book of James, that every time we sin, it says sin brings forth death. And we, we sinned this week. We have violated your law. We have sinned yesterday. We sinned this morning. And, and, and death begins its work in our relationships, in our relationship with you, with others, and just in, the, in our fruitfulness. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you that through your word, death is turned into life, or better put, death is defeated and is replaced by life. Lord, we thank you for that. I pray that you would do that work as we we read through and study these words. This, this afternoon, Lord, and, and I just pray, Father, uh, for the churches in, in Boston, Lord, the same thing would happen. Your life 
replacing death as your word is declared. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. So again, John chapter 11, the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. This chapter cannot be fully understood. We've talked about this without also understanding how Jesus loved Lazarus, how he loved Lazarus, how he loved Lazarus' sister Martha, how he loved Lazarus' sister Mary. Can't understand this chapter unless you fully understand that. Verse 2 says that this was the same Mary that we'll see in the next chapter, the Mary who takes this real expensive fragrant oil, this perfumed oil, and she, she pours it on Jesus' head, and she wipes his feet with uh, the oil with her own hair. The disciples look at it and, and they say, well, what a waste. Why this waste? And Jesus says, no, it's not a waste. What she has done for me is so beautiful that wherever I go, wherever my story is told, the story of her doing this for me will be included in that story. Jesus loved Mary. Verse 3 says that when Lazarus took sick, word was sent to Jesus that the one whom you love is sick. Verse 5 says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. Now, when God loves someone, how does he love them? This is what we've been talked about, talking about. So important. I'm spending a third week on it. How does, how does he love you in a practical way from day to day? What does that love look like? Now, we know how God loved us, past tense. We know that very well. God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. Okay, that's, that's the past that continues to affect us in the future. But how about now? How does God love me now? Well, God, if you love me, heal me of this sickness now. God, if you love me, fix this broken relationship now. God, if you love me, get me another job. Now. God, if you love me, send me a friend, just one friend, just even one. Now, Lord. God, if you love me, fix my immigration status. God, if you love me, give me money. Now I need it. I, 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 I won't be able to eat. Give me money. Please, now, God, please, if you love me, do it, God. Now, it's, it's that kind of understanding of how God loves, that view of how God loves, that Jesus speaks into in verse 5. He speaks into that. He says in verse 5, now, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. He loved them, so he waited two days. So we see here a view of God's love that's very different. This kind of love waits. Matthew chapter 8 Many of you are familiar with this story. A commander in the Roman army, a Roman centurion, sent word to Jesus to come heal his servant who was at the point of death. And what did Jesus do? He just spoke a word right there. He didn't have to go there. He didn't have to go where the servant was. He spoke a word right there. He said, go your way. Your servant is healed. And Matthew 8 says, at that very hour, his servant was made well. All Jesus has to do is speak a word. Here in John chapter 11, he does something very different. 
not only does he not speak the word that would have healed Lazarus that moment, it says that he stayed two more days in the place where he was knowing that Mary and Martha would have to go through the horrors of seeing their brother die. The heart-ripping apart horrors of seeing him suffer. Of having a gaping wound of loss drive into their hearts when Lazarus gave up his last breath. Jesus waited, knowing that by waiting, that would happen. Is that how you treat someone you love God? God, is is this how you treat someone you love? Every day, thousands upon thousands of people ask God that same question. And there's an answer. There's an answer for you. If you're willing to accept this answer, it will radically change your life. Now, now we really see the answer in its short form. In verse 4, Jesus says, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. What is God's glory? And we talked about that. The glory of God. It's that part of God that part of God that when you see it, you're just left awestruck. You're, you, you see the power of God, the, the wisdom of God, the, the love of God, the mercy, and, and you see it, all of a sudden it, it bursts forth in your life and you're like, wow, and there's like an explosion in your life. Wow, I never saw this. I never knew this about you, God. Or, or yes, God, I've seen this in from you a hundred times and every time it's like the first time and, and there's an explosion. Explosion of what? Of joy. Of joy. First Peter 4.13 says this. We put this verse up last week. When his glory is revealed, you will also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, what brings about the exceeding joy? When his glory is revealed. When you see his glory, and not until that time, not until the time that you see the glory of God, will you experience exceeding joy. Not kind of, sort of, maybe joy, exceeding joy. Jude, verse 24, says this, Now him, now to him, to God, who is able to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Same thing. How do you get to exceeding joy? Not until you see his glory. And so, Love. What does love look like? It's not the instant gratification thing. It's not the, oh, I, 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 if you love me, heal me of this sickness now. Okay, you're healed. Or if you love me, sick, uh, fix this broken relationship now. Okay, uh, your relationship fixed. Okay, God, if you love me, you get me another job now. Okay, get your job. I need a friend now. Got it, your friend. I need my immigration status changed now. Okay, you got it. I need money now. You you got it. What's going to happen with that? That's not love. Because instant gratification, what does that do to someone? It just turns them into a self-centered, selfish, me-centered, me is the only important thing in the world, Man or woman. That's what happens when parents do parenting like that. Anytime their kids ask for something, they give it to them right then and there. They show up in school and then they're the worst horror, speaking of horrors, in their class or in Sunday school or wherever. That's not what love looks like. It is not what love looks like. What did we say love was? What, what love looked like? Love is doing whatever it takes 
to bring you to the place of exceeding joy which can only come to the pl- uh, only be experienced sometimes by waiting. Let me just repeat that. Love is doing whatever it takes to bring you to the place of exceeding joy which can only happen when you experience God's glory, when you see God's glory. So if you have to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait, God's going to do that in your life because you see the glory of God. And oh man, when you're, you're looking at a situation, and, and any way you look at it, you look at it a thousand different ways and you only see hopelessness, you only see pain, sorrow, nothing else. Look, it's not easy. It is not easy. Whatever kind of person you are, that's really hard. <laughs> and we saw last week, we said, you know, you take three completely different kind of people, they're all going to react to this situation differently. What situation? A situation where they thought God's love would look one way and they get something completely different. We saw three different personalities, three different kinds of people responding to Jesus waiting. All of them couldn't understand. All of them, it didn't make sense. All of them, wait, love does not look like this. Number one, we saw it was Martha. Who is Martha? She's chop, chop Martha. She's all about the detail, Martha. You figure out the quickest way from A to B, and you go that way. Anyone who doesn't go that way is a fool, right? You always take the quickest way. She meets Jesus. Verse 21, her brother's dead. Jesus had waited, so her brother was dead. And she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, how does Jesus respond to personality number one? Verse 23 says, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus says to her, now he just speaks a word into her life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. So personality number one, what they needed was an, an apt word, a word, a timely word. And, and she got it. And the word was... Uh, you know, he, she's, she's saying, well, look, if you had been here, my brother, uh, he wouldn't have died. And he said, well, you'll rise again. Well, you know, I know he'll rise again in the last day. And he says, no, I'm the resurrection and the life. Now you can have the resurrection life. Now you can have eternal life. Now you can enjoy me, enjoy uh, everything who I am, who God is now. And so right then she saw the glory of God. She didn't, I'm convinced of this. She didn't have to wait to see Lazarus rise from the dead. She got that experience now. It's like, wow, this is the fullness of God. I never knew God like this. I didn't, the resurrection life now, I didn't know that. She had that taste of exceeding joy before she ever even saw Lazarus raised from the dead. Now, personality number two is Mary... Mary's more about the heart than the mind. She's not as concerned about an answer from Jesus' lips as an answer from Jesus' heart. Logic and reason are okay, but man, I want to feel the answer. I got to feel the answer. And so uh, Jesus comes up to her. She comes up to Jesus uh, in verse uh, 32 and says the same thing, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is this love? I, I don't get it. Waiting? And Jesus responds to her, but he doesn't say a word to her. Instead, verse 35 says this, Jesus wept. And that's what this particular kind of person has to have. Getting a right Bible verse or an apt word, a timely word, whatever you want to call it, that doesn't do it for them. They need to feel God weeping. 
They need, to, they need to experience, they need to know that God's heart is broken. And he does that. If you seek him, if you seek the heart of the Lord, if you pursue his heart on a matter that is breaking your heart, you will experience the weeping of the Lord. You will. That's what personally number two has got to have. And God gives it to them. Now, personality number three meets up with Jesus in verse 37. And some of them um, said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? So they're skeptics. They don't get it. They don't believe. They have a chip off their shoulder. And how does Jesus respond to them? With power. (laughs) With power. We can just get the short version of the story in verse 43. Now, when he had said these things, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. He rose a man from the dead. I do think it's important that person number one, Chop Chop Martha, was able to experience the glory of God before the dead body was ever even raised, she was able to see and find out the heart of God and, and, and have that taste of, of, of joy. It's like, wow, this is God. I never knew this. Same thing I, with all my heart, I believed with, with Mary. Before Lazarus was ever raised from the dead, here was a woman who, who discovered he weeps for me. God weeps for me. He weeps over me. And she experienced the glory of God again. Before ever, and, and that exceeding joy that went along with it, before ever seeing her, her brother raised from the dead. Now the third personality, they were just skeptics. They were you know, they weren't interested. They, they were not going to receive anything from the word of God. They were not, not going to receive anything from the heart of God. They needed, a, uh, um, they needed a display of power. And they got it. And one of, the, one of the things we take away from this, by the way, is that God doesn't see you as a commodity. You know what that is? Just like you're a number. You're just like every other person on seven billion person planet earth. He doesn't treat everyone the same way. He he treats you, he loves you individually, independently of everyone else, and he's going to respond to you different than anybody else in the world. He's going to put that special touch on you. This is what we see in here. But God's glory, that's how he loves you. He loves you in such a way that he wants you to experience really what the most pleasurable thing is on planet Earth, exceeding abundant joy, which you can only get by seeing the glory of God. He said to Martha in verse 40, did I not say to you that if you believe you would see the glory of God? The glory of God. Now, the thing I love about this chapter, again, is I, I read here and I learn that Mary, Mary and Martha saw the glory of God before raising the raising of Lazarus from the dead. You know, the Bible does say that all of us are going to get a glorified body someday. Either at 
the rapture of Jesus or upon his return. We're going to get a glorified body. But the question for you is, are you going to wait till then to see God in all his glory? Are you going to do that? Because sometimes there will be, we'll, we'll pray to God, there will be no bringing back from death. There will not be when you pray for it. There, sometimes with God, there's not going to be a physical healing. Sometimes the answer that you want from God doesn't come, ever. But what always comes, if you're open to seeing it and asking for it, is the glory of God, which is accompanied with exceeding abundant joy. It's, it's radically change your life. If you see this and you get this. So how about you? Are you looking at a situation in your life where any way you look at it, you can look at it a hundred different ways, a thousand different ways, all you see is hopelessness. This situation cannot possibly be fixed. Only pain and sorrow is going to come out of it. I shared with you last week about the call that I received from one of the moms in, the, in our bus ministry. Each Sunday morning we go into the projects and, and pick up children who come to church. One of the moms called me and she wanted me to be with her at the trial of two men who were accused of murdering her son. I shared this story with you last Sunday. And I did, again, for three and a half days, I sat with her. What did I see? I shared this with you last week. I saw a, a, a situation, just as the witnesses came and testified, it's the different people there, it's, it's being around the, the family and friends of, of, of the victim. I saw, I saw a situation. You look at it a thousand different ways, and any way you look at it, there's just hopelessness. There's just, there's a cycle of poverty. There's a cycle of violence. There's a, a, a cycle of hopelessness. And you know, what do people do uh, with, uh, with all that poverty, all that hopelessness? And well, they, they find love wherever they can find it. And, and you know, in the projects that is sex and drugs and sex and drugs. And, and in the suburbs west of Boston, which are the mansions, it's the same place they go to, to cope with hopelessness, sex and drugs, drugs and sex. And so, so no fathers there in the projects anywhere in sight, so the kids are look, look for a different family. They find it in gangs, just like their fathers did. The father of this, uh, this young man, his name is DeAndre. He, he used to attend our church. He was part of the bus ministry. He used to attend church here. He came went on our youth group mission trips. We played basketball with him every Saturday. He went on a youth group missions trip, and the youth group leader asked him, what is your number one prayer in life? What's your number one prayer? He says, my prayer is that I be able to live until I was 21 years old. And so that prayer was not answered. So I sat through this trial, and the Friday before last Friday, the two young men were convicted of murder. And so on Sunday, when I was speaking to you last Sunday, what had not happened yet was their sentencing. So last Tuesday was their sentencing, and the judge is there. It's where the judge officially rules on what punishment would be for the two young men in their early 20s convicted of murder. And as part of his decision last Tuesday on deciding what punishment he would give, the judge heard statements from the family of the victim and others that happens in the sentencing hearing, and that happened last Tuesday. Now, what I share with you last Sunday was this. What if... What if in this situation, which has, there's just no hope, there's just all this crazy madness, it's the 
guns, the, the, the pride, the, the killing, the, the, the revenge, the, the craziness, all the YouTube videos of different gangs making threats against one another, just the stupidity, but for the grace of God, go high. But when you look at the situation, there's no hope there. There's a thousand different ways. There's just pain and sorrow and a cycle. It's never going to end. What if, though, if at the sentencing hearing, which, again, it had not happened last Sunday. It was the following Tuesday. It was last Tuesday. What if those two young men convicted of murder, what if, what if the, the family of the victims, what if, what if that courtroom saw a picture of the glory of God? that they would never otherwise see. Because after all, remember this, this is hard theology. This is hard Bible stuff. God allowed all this. He knew it was coming. He knew that it was coming. And so what if, so why God? This is how you love God? I've heard this. (laughs) This is asked every day. Thousands of times all around the world. It happened in, happened, I'm sure, no doubt, happened in this case. How does God allow this? How does God see this? Well, might it be that in that courtroom, the glory of God burst through? And so after church last Sunday, I took a walk, took a walk over to the projects, and I talked with DeAndre's mother, and I told her, You gotta forgive. You gotta get inside that courtroom and you gotta forgive. And she was completely close to it, which I get. She was completely closed. See, I don't care what God says, I don't care what the Bible says, I don't care what. Jesus says, I will never forgive. Probably heard that statement three or four times. And I get it. Don't you? I get it. She said, you know, those moms of those two young men, they can go at any time they want. They can visit their kids. I'll never be able to do that again in my life. And so... I walked away, and as I was walking home, the Lord said, for the first time, the Lord was speaking to my heart, and he says, okay, it's, it's you then. <laughs> You've got to say something in that courtroom. And I, I just can't, this stuff type, this type of thing happens. I'm like, why, come on, I, I, I'm there. That's my role is to be like uh, with the family. I, I mean, I, it's like, and I'm just thinking to myself, why, why go through this? I don't even know. I don't, I don't, I'm surely I'm not allowed to say what I, something in that courtroom. So I wrote out a, I did, I wrote out a statement. And I'm looking at the thing and I'm like, I have no idea if something like this is allowed to be read in a courtroom. So I, I gave it to the prosecutor in the case. I gave it to her. And uh, I also asked his mother, the deceased mother, look, can I read this thing? So I don't really find out until I'm literally walking into the courtroom. Yeah, they're okay with it. Go ahead, read it. And so this is what, um, this is what I read in open court. Now, there in court, there was the judge. It was filled with attorneys. It was filled with police officers. There's probably like a dozen police officers as, at least. There's families of, uh, the, the family members of the, uh, of the victim and also of the convicted murderers. And of course, the convicted murderers are both sitting there in the front with shackles on their feet. So I read this out in court. They called me up. I said, my name is Steve Cole. I'm the pastor of Calvary Chapel in the city. I was DeAndre's pastor. DeAndre was part of our youth group. I played basketball with DeAndre many times. His sister and brother attend the church each week and have been in my house for Easter dinner. 
By murdering DeAndre, Mr. Ock and Mr. Ortiz robbed DeAndre's siblings of an older brother. And they robbed our church of a friend. But I want to tell them I forgive them and that God loves them. He loves them so much that he sent his son Jesus into the world to take on the guilt of DeAndre's murder on himself. And then he was punished for DeAndre's murder by being crucified on the cross. The Bible says if they ask God for forgiveness and are willing to accept what Jesus did for them on the cross and invite him into their life to be Lord and King, no sin they have ever done will be held against them by God. I want to tell Mr. Ock and Mr. Ortiz that I will pray for both of them that they will come to an understanding of the fullness of God's love for them. And that's what I said to a packed courtroom. Now, what happens next was far more astonishing. A statement was made by Jandri's mother. It was a written statement made by someone else because she couldn't read it herself. In her statement, I almost fell off out of my chair. She said, I have been told that in order to heal, I need to forgive you. And she said, I'm not there yet. I'm trying. I'm working on it. And then she addressed her sorrow for the prisoner, uh, the convicted murderer's parents, what they must be going through. And the last thing she said is, I hope someday I can forgive them. It's a woman who had been completely shut down just a few days before, two days before. And then one of the convicted murderer's brothers got up there on the stand and he addressed John Dre's mother and family and friends. And he said, I've been praying for you every day during this trial. I go to church every week. I serve at my church. And I just want to say, on behalf of my family, we're so sorry for what happened. We're so sorry. And we wish we could make, make things different for you. And then he addressed the judge. He said, Judge, I too ask for justice here. I want justice here. But I just ask that you temper the justice with mercy. So at that point, the judge recessed. He took a break for 50 minutes so he could think about what was just said before he came in and gave his final sentence. And so the courtroom was dismissed, and everyone sort of stood up, and a man came to me, and he said, uh, Pastor Cole, he said, I've been a detective in the Boston Police Department for 25 years, and I have never seen the presence of God descend on a courtroom like he did today. And he told me that like three times. He's a big old dude. He's like six foot seven. I mean, it was like, whoa, yeah, I, I, I like the, the message and the messenger here. And, uh, but it was just so powerful. So that, the, the judge came back in. He sentenced them to a very long time in prison. However, not before they got to experience the glory of God. Not before, not before they were able to see that there is a God who forgives and forgives people through people. They were able to see, they were, they were able to get that, those initial seeds of what will, I believe and pray will someday be a, a, a source of exceeding joy for them. They, they were able, to, uh, they were able to, to, to see a vision of hope in front of them, which would otherwise just, have, just the hopelessness would have crushed them. The glory of God. When we're in front of circumstances, they just look crazy, crazy, crazy painful and unfixable. 
God can turn it all into his glory and into joy. But who are you this morning? Who are you? Because we saw two different responses here to the raising of Lazarus. Response number one says in verse 45, read it with me in John chapter 11. It says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. That's response number one. They were open to walk with God, surrendering their lives to him and their circumstances in a way that they were willing to walk through pain and sorrow in order to see the glory of God. Are you that person? Are you? Response number two But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Now, what's that about? Well, it's just about some people rejecting God, even in the face of a powerful display of of glory. And the Bible does say that. It says that anyone who rejects God, they are without excuse. Because what has made clear to everyone just through creation itself has been made clear to them. They reject God. So let's finish up here. It says in verse 47, it says, then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council, can also be translated Sanhedrin, and said, what shall we do? For this man, speaking of Jesus, works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so what they're referring to there is this growing multitude around Jesus. They're seeing his miracles. They're seeing his works. If the Romans were in power, who were go- it's the Roman Empire at this point, man, if they get spooked by a growing crowd, spooked by their authority being threatened, they're just going to crush the whole thing. We're all going to get killed, which actually happens 40 years from this point. It actually did happen in 70 AD to the city of Jerusalem. So this is a real fear. Verse 49 says, one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So what's this about? Well, verse 50. Well, I want to put up a different translation from the New Living Translation. Also, actually, many translations use this, this wording. So this is the high priest Caiaphas, and he's speaking to the other people on this ruling council. They, they're sort of a governing council of Jews to decide what would happen to Jews who were misbehaving. And oh, was Jesus misbehaving. He said, you don't realize that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. And then the next verse says uh, that, verse 51 says, Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And so what's going on here is this. This guy Caiaphas is an evil man. He's a wicked man. And, and he is a wicked man, but he's high priest. And that office, that position of high priest, was an office that had been instituted 
in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic law. And, and you see times in the Old Testament that even though the person occupying that position was an evil man, God still worked through them. Sometimes, like here, God spoke a word of prophecy or a word of knowledge or spoke something to the people. And so what he is saying here, Sean, can we get the verse up one more time? What he is saying here in this prophecy, he says he's speaking to the other people on this governing council. He's saying, you don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. What he's saying here in this prophecy really goes to the very heart and soul of the Christian faith and of the Bible. And it can be said in one word, substitution. Substitution. Rather than all of us die because of our own sins, we need a substitute. We need a substitute really bad because we're in big trouble with a holy God otherwise. Now, one of the things that on Saturday nights we have evangelism training, and recently one of the things that we went over in our, our, our evangelism training on Saturday night is how to witness, share your faith with a Muslim. One thing about Muslims, by the way, never be intimidated talking to a, a Muslim. They love talking about God. I mean, you, you, you know, you get up to me, you're a little scared, oh no, he's a Muslim from another religion. They love talking with God. It does not, this is not the case with many that we run into on Saturday nights, but Muslims love talking about God. They love talking about Jesus because Jesus is mentioned throughout the Quran. But how do you witness to one? So I read a, a great article on this, and the article just said this, focus on substitution. Focus on substitution with a Muslim. Focus on substitution with a Muslim, but also with anybody else you're talking to about God because the fact of the matter is is that though people may think otherwise, though a Muslim may think otherwise, there's nothing they can do and there's nothing you can do and there's nothing I can do in a thousand lifetimes to deserve heaven, to deserve a relationship with God. It's impossible. And you know, a, a, a simple few uh, Bible verses make that super, super clear. So if you're talking to a Muslim or anybody else, substitution, bring up these verses. Jeremiah chapter 17 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In other words, it's so bad, who could possibly figure it out? A human heart. And the NIV translation says it's beyond cure. So how, what am I supposed to do? I have this heart. I can try to be good to people, like good to my neighbor, not, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. But I know full well what's in my heart, and it ain't good. The Bible confirms it. Not only in Jeremiah, but Matthew chapter 15, 19, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus says what? Out of the heart. Whose heart? Your heart and my heart. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders. You say, I never murdered. Well, Jesus says when you get angry, you murder. Adulteries. I've never committed adulteries. Jesus says when you look at uh, another woman or man with lust, you commit adultery. Fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. It's all out of your heart. Now, how can you be good enough? How can you be good enough to somehow wipe all that out, to clean it out? It's impossible. The, the, the more I grow as a Christian, the more I realize how desperately wicked my heart is. I need, you need, a Muslim needs a substitute. And Isaiah 53 makes it really clear who the substitute is. It says this in Isaiah 53 about Jesus and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity 
of us all. Jesus died for the sins of an entire nation, the Jewish nation. And it says, not only them, verse 52, but all the children of God scattered throughout the world, which includes you. The glory of God more than anything else is revealed there. The joy, the the exceeding abundant joy when a man or woman understands what happened on the cross, how deep the level is of their corruption, how unsavable they are, but that they were saved by Jesus and just that love that is displayed with the blood pouring out. It poured out for them, for you. You talk about exceeding abundant joy. You talk about the glory of God. That's it. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now, and we're just going to close out this, this service now with worship and with prayer. If you've been asked to pray, if you could come up now. Is there a situation in your life which is just stealing from your joy, your peace, your fruitfulness? Because any way you look at it, a thousand different ways, it's unfixable. God wants to do a work of glory. He wants you to see a work of glory. If he could do that in the courtroom, in the Suffolk Superior Court on Tuesday in Boston, he can do it in your life. You would see a piece of glory there. Why don't you rise for this closing worship song and... close in prayer but if there's something that you your heart is just clinging to the time now is to let go and let God now some people don't like that expression it happens to be thoroughly biblical <laughs> by holding on to it you will not be able to fix it By letting go of it, you can see a piece of God's glory. So if you're standing there and your seat's there, let go and worship. And if you need help to get there, we're up here to pray. So Father, in the name of Jesus, I just pray, God, for these men and women, these children, this place and in this time and be able to worship you and find that path to exceeding abundant joy that path to your glory I pray this in Jesus name Amen let's worship and pray